4: John Copenhagen and Al Warren Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los
2: Angeles 102.3 FM
1: Riverside
4: and 105.0 AM Palm Springs
1: Alright, you are back in the House of Mystery and we are at the interview part of the show. Uh, joining us is uh, a man that's uh, really done it all. Um, what caught me was his uh, book on uh, Sherlock Holmes, which came out in June, uh, June 1st. It's The Wild Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, but he's got a huge career, so we'll get to it now. Uh, so thank you for joining us today, Will Murray.
3: So happy to be here.
1: Well, I don't know where to start. Um, so <laughs> how did you... Wh- before we get to the book, how did you get into a career like you've had? Like you've had a, an amazing career. I, I see you've well, done all sorts of stuff.
3: Like a lot of things, I stumbled backwards into multiple um, opportunities, and uh, you know it wasn't a linear thing. I um, I think I first started in fanzines writing about pulp magazines, which was an interest of mine. Pulp magazines of the nineteen thirties and forties, specifically the characters of Doc Savage and the Shadow. And that somehow grew into a kind of an octopus of opportunities, which included ghostwriting the the famous Destroyer paperback series, uh, which I did 40, uh, and writing uh, Doc Savage, which I did through my uh, association with uh, Lester Dent's uh, widow, Norma Dent. Lester Dent was the author of Doc Savage. He wrote as Kenneth Robeson. And I had the opportunity to to, um, turn... Some of his unfinished works into novels, and I'm still writing the occasional Doc Savage to this day. I also had a long career writing for magazines, specifically the Starlaw group of magazines where I covered films around the world and interviewed you know comic book people, movie people, TV people, and science fiction people and horror people. And you know, um, we could go down other pathways, but basically over time, my career, Aggregated or accumulated, you might say. It was like a snowball, but it rolled uphill instead of downhill.
1: Huh? You know, I, I was going to say, but when you take you, you do a lot of characters that are a mystery and crime solving. You know, like you look right. at uh, um, the Shadow, for instance, and stuff. When, when you write those characters, where do, where do you get the ideas from, and how do you how do you keep it true to form?
3: Well, when when I write dark savage and the shadow and things that are set in the 1930s or 40s or whatever time frame as often as not i'm working with um outlines uh, premises unfinished manuscripts so i plug into that um that writer his characters and the time period I, i i people sometimes ask me how do you write a story set in 1933 when the year is 20 something and i said well i don't write consciously a story set in 1933. I write as if I'm a contemporary writer writing in 1933. In other words, I immerse myself in that time period, but mostly in the sensibility of the source material. And I, 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 I try to avoid self-consciously writing in a, in a specific year because I don't want to sound artificial. So certain things are taken for granted. Uh, I don't, you know, in other words, I don't usually throw in historical characters or illusions. I just try to say, okay, it's 1933, this is what the world's like, and these are what the cars are like, and these are what telephones are like, and we're going to have a story. And, you know, it helps a lot if you have some fragmentary manuscript. I've had a lot of access to a lot of these things. So when you type someone else's manuscript to start a story, which I've had the privilege to do several times, it kind of plugs you in it's a kind of channeling you know Uh, someone reviewed one of my recent books uh, featuring a character who's like the shadow the spider and the reviewer said you know this guy is interesting he he writes like the spider writer when he writes the spider but he writes like the dark savage writer when he writes like when he writes dark savage and he writes like the Shadow Rider, when he writes The Shadow, how does he do that? Well, I'm not going to tell how so, I do that, but I just sort of <laughs> explained it. You know, I mean, there's something else going on, too, but, you know, it's, it's a gift.
2: So, Will, I have a question. Sure. Um, uh, the, when you're uh, writing uh, these stories, even with the uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, are you worried about the anachronisms, or are you pretty, to uh, do you have a strong base to, uh, to understand what happened
3: at that time I'm always concerned about anachronisms and errors this is why I have a team of editors who will read my stuff and give me feedback uh I think the thing I worry about with Sherlock Holmes is I'm very very self-conscious that I am on a, a 21st century American writer trying to write a 19th century British character I mean you know you can emulate the Conan Doyle style but you really can't be Conan Doyle it's too much of a reach. So when I look at a, a Doyle story, I look at his paragraphing and you know how much time he spends on a, on a description of a character, and I said, well, he spends more time than I would normally do. And I try to stretch a little so I can be more Doylish in my writing, but the fact is I tend to be more of a dialogue-driven writer, and he tends to be more of a narrative writer. So I have to compromise my own. Uh, approach without sacrificing my my gifts because at this point in my career, I tend to dictate my my first drafts on my iPad and then I I, I polish them and rewrite them and bring in the stuff that wouldn't come through if you're just sitting in a chair dictating a story.
2: So so the question is like uh, especially with Sherlock Holmes stories lots of uh, it's a lot of uh, dr watson kind of narrating a bit do you try to capture dr watson as well oh absolutely
3: science? i mean that's the only way to, i mean i know other people do other approaches but i'm trying to write a sherlock holmes story that you could slip into an existing anthology of sherlock holmes stories and say yeah that that reads reasonably authentic if you analyze it you might say well there are things that are you know not purely victorian in terms of uh vocabulary and how, you know, uh, how British English is written and how it sounds and how dialogue is. I do the best I can. I have an uh, I have an Irish mother. I had an Irish mother until she passed away. So some of that language and sensibility is, 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 is was in the household when I grew up because she came from Ireland and she was of a much older generation than the current generation. She's been gone for a few years now. So I, I just do the best I can with the tools I have. But I, you know, I don't sit down and write a, let me do Sherlock Holmes my way, because I, I think there are people who do that and make interesting stories. But I find most interesting as a writer, because I've had this opportunity many, many times, is to slip into another writer's shoes, especially a deceased writer, and, and, and just say, okay, I'm gonna be that writer. I'm gonna use his vocabulary to the best of my ability. I'm going to see the world the way he sees it, and I'm going to depict his characters as authentically as I possibly can. That's my, that's my approach.
2: Hmm. So you should have been an actor as well.
3: Yeah, maybe, except I can't act.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, half Hollywood can't act. But <laughs> yeah, well, true. <laughs>
3: um,
1: I was going to, you know, uh, do you worry about fans of, like, The Shadow or Sherlock Holmes and something like that um, not being happy with the way you write?
3: Uh no because you know not at this point because from the beginning my first doc savage which i wrote is you know in 1979 80 and it wasn't published till about 1991 uh, the reactions initially was were you know some of them were wow this really was like lester dent wrote it uh and i just had that gift as i as i said I, I, yeah, sometimes someone will say I, I, I published a Tarzan novel recently, and someone said, "Well, your Tarzan is a little rougher than Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan in a couple spots." And I, you know, and I deliberately did that because he was in a situation that would make him his polish would wear off a little. So you'd always get criticisms, or someone who said, "I don't know if that that character would say those words," but for the most part, people accept my approach. Uh, it's been it's it's been I've been on the money for so long and in so many books that I don't worry about it, except in the sense of when I'm writing, rewriting, editing one of my books, I'm, I'm looking for the anachronism or the, maybe the word choice isn't perfectly 1937 or, or 1894, and which is why when I'm doing these, and this is a problem for me, when, I, when I'm writing a book, let's say I'm writing Sherlock Holmes, I usually write short stories, so this isn't a big problem. But when I'm writing Sherlock Holmes, I'm also rereading Doyle. I'm not reading any other fiction. And the reason I'm not reading any other fiction is I tend to absorb the style of whoever I'm reading at a given time, if I'm writing fiction at the same time. So I, 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 I have to avoid reading for pleasure when I'm working on a book or a novel that's based on something that already exists. So so I immerse myself, and that keeps me honest.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I ask, I ask a lot of writers that, too, because some some seem to be able to, uh, you know, be reading anything and doing whatever and write, and others don't. And uh, I, I kind of agree with you there. I like to stay away from uh, other works. Yeah, I can't do it. Yeah. You
3: know, I can't do it. Yeah. Successfully, I remember once I was writing uh, four destroyers a year, and I was writing at that point three dark savages. And I wrote, I think, my third dark savage, and I had like a five or six chapter start that the original writer had left behind. So I typed that up, and I just ran with it. And I had a wonderful experience. I felt like this is really feeling authentic, and this is a strong story. And when it was done, I wanted to do another, but I had a destroyer do. So I switched to destroyer. I switched too fast. And the writing picked up from Doc Savage in a way that I struggled with and I got control of. But some of it had a more old-fashioned you know, writing style, and I was never happy with the book because, one, I didn't want to write it. I wanted to write a Doc Savage at that point because I was in that flow. But I was so in that flow, I couldn't get into the destroyer flow, which was, that was a 1990s book. So this was, con- that was a contemporary series at that time. And, you know, so that's that's the trouble or the, the challenge of writing multiple books that are emulating different writers. So I try to stay with one writer for as long as I can, which doesn't happen that often, really. But I try, I'd like to do it that way.
1: Hmm. So so where did this come from? Like When you started uh, emulating other writers and doing these stories, like Sherlock Holmes, Shadow, Doc Savage, and all that, did you listen to the old radio shows and things like that, or were you influenced by
3: it? Uh, I wouldn't say influence in the way you're, you're, you're saying it, because I'm always influenced by the writer. I'm trying to capture the writer's style, words, approach, sensibility. But I grew up in the early 60s when the Shadow came back on radio in reruns, And so my exposure to The Shadow was initially in uh, uh, reruns of old-time radio and some comic book stuff that was coming out of that time that wasn't very authentic. Um, uh, So, you know, I I, I don't take from the radio so much because the the Shadow novels are are of a different type. The, The characters are quite the same. And the approach isn't quite the same, and one is a short, basically a short radio story, and the other's are novels. So, but I, I am strongly influenced by you know old-time radio in my enjoyment of things and in my sensibilities. I love a mystery is one of my favorite radio shows, and I remember listening you know to the Lone Ranger a lot, and I remember the Green Hornet. You know, I love the TV show and the radio show, and uh, there were a few other things. That I listened to sporadically, but the ones that that most influenced me in the sense of they got me into old time radio were the shadow, of the green Hornet, and I think the third man was another too. that was a good show yeah. but i'll tell you uh to answer your question in a different way, i'll tell you a spooky story uh which may you know may go to why I can do what I can do, but I don't know because at the time it happened, I thought about it one way, and I think about it differently now when i First, sat down to write my first novel, which was a Doc Savage novel. I had a 10-12 page outline that Lester Dent had written in 1934. They got rejected for kind of a dumb reason, and I got permission from his widow to turn it into a novel and see if we could sell it to Bantam Books, who was doing Doc. So I, I, you know, it was my first novel, so I, I approached it cautiously. So I wrote a little epilogue. I mean, a little prologue. And I typed out a first chapter on my old Olivetti portable typewriter that I had in those days. Then I wrote a second chapter the next day, and maybe the next day after that. And one day I'm sitting to write. And I had a strange experience. I had a a sensation of someone standing behind me. No one was there. And all of a sudden my energy just accelerated. And I think I wrote three chapters that day. And the next day I wrote four or five or something crazy. Unless Lester was a speed writer, but he used to dictate too. Uh, and I had three or maybe four days in which I'm, I'm doing 20 pages one day, 30 pages the next day, 40 pages the next day, and then I crashed for several days. And then I went back to writing more in a chapter or two a day style. And I used to joke in those days, because I would in my 20s at that time. I would say, you know, it kind felt of like almost like Mr. Depp came up behind me and kind of just supercharged mm-hmm. me or something. And, um, um that got me over the hump of writing a chapter a day feeling my way forward at that point i've had a lot of confidence and i just followed the outline as best i could and so you know i I think to some degree when i do this stuff for instance i knew walter gibson created the shadow i knew how he thought uh and i read most of his books and he did hundreds uh so between practically memorizing the books and just having that ability to kind of plug into someone's energy and channel them to a degree, channel them as filtered through my own sensibilities. I guess, you know, I just do it in a kind of organic, strange kind of way. So Does that question. make any sense? Yeah. It does. Uh,
2: well, I want to go back to Sherlock Holmes because I love uh, – who done And stuff. And mm-hmm. with uh, the let's say, like those ten stories you have there. Now, do you uh, prepare by maybe listening to true crime or something like this, so of get some ideas? No,
3: on... I mean not not specifically. My inspirations for my Sherlock Holmes stories come from different places. Um, there was one, um, the the misadventure of the Bonnie Boy. I don't want to say what triggered it in precise terms, but I'd read a story a number of years ago about a boy who went missing and many years passed and they found him in an unusual place. And and, and he wasn't murdered. Uh, he just got into a misadventure. And I, 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 when I started writing Sherlock Holmes stories, I thought of that story and I said, well, you know, if you transport what happened to that kid to, you know, Victorian England, you can add a little bit of more mystery and a suggestion of the supernatural you you might have a story so i I did a story that was kind of downbeat you know sherlock holmes solves the mystery but you know the it's not a happy ending there was one story i happened to pick up a book that was in you know i buy books all the time and i like a lot of people i don't read them right away and i was clearing out you know some storage space and i came across this book i'd never read on spontaneous human combustion and i read it not just it's fascinating stuff and you know but what's the what's behind it and i it came to me that i could do a good sherlock holmes story around it but how would holmes explain the mystery you know because the i'm sure you guys know what spontaneous human combustion <laughs> stories are yeah um yeah. yeah you know so you know i came up with a story with an unusual ending because sherlock holmes had to Resolve the the, the mystery in, in in on his own terms. You know he does. He's not a believer in the supernatural. We we don't really want stories that are super science stories or science fiction. So I call that one the singular problem of the ex- extinguished Wicks. And this involved two sisters whose last name was Wick, They're like Candlewick, and they were both found you know spontaneously combusted. Holmes in my story faced his most challenging challenge because no easy solution presented itself. You couldn't come up with a solution that fit the facts, like most spontaneous human combustion stories. you come up with a theory where you said, well, this could have happened and that could have happened, but they tend to break down when you analyze them because, you know, a lot of people have been found by their their fireplace places or on their hearths, but burned up in a way that, doesn't suggest a problem lighting the the, the fireplace. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, I don't really read true crime. Uh, I, I tend to write imaginative stories, although most of my stories by, with Sherlock Holmes are traditional and grounded. Once in a while we do deviate for a special anthology and we do something a little more uh, recherche, as Holmes would say. Uh, but you know, I look for something imaginative but plausible. And whether you're writing a dark savage or a Sherlock Holmes, you're, you, 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 there's a technique of working from uh, backwards, from effect to cause. You know, for instance, if you find a body in a an apartment where the body is completely consumed by fire, but the walls are aren't burned, the furniture isn't burned, you've got a weird cause effect. Excuse me. And so the, the, the writer as well as the protagonist has to work backwards from something weird just happened here. We have to figure it out, and we have to have an understanding of it to solve the problem or to prevent it from happening again. So working from effect backwards to cause, because it's not a very interesting story if someone spontaneously combusts in front of witnesses and they say, oh, this is how it happened, and then, you know, what's, what's the mystery? Where does the story go? you know you want the solution at the end not the big not the beginning of the story so
2: how did dr watson handle this spontaneous combustion how do you have the done
3: well you're at you know i've written 22 sherlock holmes stories most of the last three years if you want me to remember any one of them we're going to have we're going to have a struggle here. i I don't remember (laughs) you know i mean i just turned in one a couple weeks ago and i turned in another one Last month, and you know, in my mind, both of them are a little confused in terms of which is which. I know which is which, but you know if you want me to um <laughs> uh I would say Watson is you know being a medical guy probably looked at it from a medical standpoint and said, this is not possible, this is possible, this' is how this might have happened, but you know you focus on Holmes more because he's the real analytical one. Watson is good for saying, you know this is plausible, this is impossible, this is." You know you know he's he's the one who's often befuddled but helpful in terms of sorting things out where Holmes is looking at okay we can exclude this we can't exclude that uh, we cannot assume murder but we can't uh, exclude it either so he you know his reaction to the the, the discoveries is what is really of paramount importance because he's the one who wrestles with them
1: Hmm. You know, you talk about uh, being authentic. Uh, Now, Sherlock Holmes uh, has been, you know, um, updated so many times and and, uh, written through the years and has resurgence. Do you think and do you like the later versions that you see of Sherlock Holmes on television and movies lately?
3: I don't watch hardly any of them. I saw the first Robert Jones. Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes film which I thought was good for what it was that's now what 10 years ago so once again if you ask me to remember specifics I don't really I didn't see the second I'm not seeing the Sherlock Holmes shorts I mean uh, TV shows and I haven't read anything that's that's Holmes again that isn't written by by uh, Doyle so I don't have much of opinion I remember seeing some of the older Sherlock Holmes films on TV in the in the 60s or 70s and liking them for what they were Um, but uh, I'm not drawn to the to the modern versions I'm I'm more of a reader than a viewer so if I want a Sherlock Holmes experience I'm going to reach for one of the books and I'm going to reread a story or two Hmm.
1: you ever wonder why certain people like that like why Sherlock Holmes is still so popular uh, so many years later
3: well, I think I have an understanding because you know, all, I write Sherlock Holmes partially because I was asked to write them and I found I, I could, I had a knack for doing them, and because they're short, you can, you can do a bunch of them fairly quickly, quickly and measured in years, not in decades, uh, as opposed to a novel. But you know, uh, I, if you think about the things that are popular, whether TV, movies, or whatever. Uh the, the Dating myself, something I like to use as an example is a TV show, The Honeymooners. Very limited vehicle, very limited cast, very formulaic in some ways, but also a lot of variation in the formula. If you watch any TV show that you liked or grew up on or you're watching now, and it has a comfortable set of characters, a certain predictability to those characters, and you like the stories, that is to say the genre or the kinds of stories that are built around the characters, you have familiarity, a level of predictability, which is a comfort zone, but also a level of unpredictability, which is the variations on the themes that people... You know, if you watch the old Seinfeld show, that show grew, but at, at a certain point it became static in terms of we knew who these characters were, and it was all about variations on various themes. The honeymooners was that way. You know, every time Ralph Cranberry said to the moon, Alice, he would give it a different inflection, intonation. It would be in a different context, even though it's usually in the same kitchen. And once in a while, he would just look at her and shake his fist, and you know he's thinking it. He doesn't have to say it. That's the variation that keeps you interested because it isn't constant repetition. So with the home stories, to do an example, you know, once you've read a few, you know what the drill is. And if you like that drill, you're going back for the comfort, the familiarity, but also the variations and the themes, the ex- the exploitation of the situations. You know, occasionally there's a story Holmes narrates. Occasionally there's a story where, you know, Watson plays a greater role than normal. Uh, and sometimes they'll bring in Mycroft Holmes, not often, but enough to say, well, this is different, but it's still a Sherlock Holmes story. So people like the repetition, the familiarity. And the variations that allow for novelty. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, totally.
1: Totally. Um, have you ever thought about making major changes to a story? What do you mean? Or a character, like making, uh, like uh, them a different character, like uh, no, Sherlock Holmes? No, because or...
3: I, I, re- I write the stories I want. I would want to read if only someone had written them. For instance, I just one of my new, my newest novel is uh, Tarzan, Conqueror of Mars. We, we put Tarzan on Mars so he could meet John Codra Mars, who is Edgar Rice Burroughs' other major character. And people have been talking about writing such a book for a long time, and a few people have taken a swing at it, not necessarily successfully and not necessarily in an authorized manner. And I got the right to put them together in a way that worked for the licensor, worked for me, and according to the reviews, works for the reader. I would never think of why don't I just take these carriages and just change them up, because, you know...
1: Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
3: Story. I know an audience exists for a John Carter story, and I know an audience definitely exists for a story where they both meet. I don't think, we need, I don't think those characters could be improved upon, not in that context. I would never think of updating Sherlock Holmes because I wouldn't know what to do with him. I thought about updating Doc Savage, who's a 1930s character, but If you take a character like that who's very much a man of his time even though he's ahead of his time i'm not sure who he'd be i'm not sure how he talked i'm not sure what his morality would be i'm not sure what his drive would be but in his time because he was a man of his time he makes sense he doesn't make sense necessarily in the 21st century because the stories of the 1930s that were ahead of their time like by 2025 years maybe more well what's ahead of our time that's a bigger speculation. You know, uh, our, our world is a science fiction world. We carry our telephones in our pockets. We're driving increasingly sophisticated automobiles and flying increasingly sophisticated planes. It's harder to predict what the future is going to be without being out-and-out science fiction. And not everybody likes out-and-out science fiction. They Like, like science adventure, which is just the flavor of, of futuristic science built on an adventure story. So I don't really think of, uh, you know, I've created my own characters. I created the unbeatable Squirrel Girl from Marvel Comics. That's a successful character now. Um, but I don't really think in terms of updating or improving characters. I like them the way they are, so that's how I write them. That's how people want them, in my opinion.
1: Hmm. That's pretty interesting. The um, So um, Tarzan is on Mars. <laughs>
3: Poor Tarzan, you know, there's no jungles on Mars. Well, there's no. some jungle, but there's hardly any jungles on Mars. It's mostly sand and, 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 and dead sea bottoms. And it, he arrives the way John Carter arrives, completely buck naked, no weapons, no nothing. And it's like, what do I do now? His objective is simply, I want to go home. I want to go back to Africa. And so that's that's that story. As simple as that sounds, it's, it, it turns into a big epic story. But, you know, his his mission is a very simple one. I want to go home. How do I get there? Who can help me? Who are my enemies? Where do I find food? Is there water on this planet? The story starts very simply with a story of survival. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know where the food is. You know, are there any apes on this planet? You know, are there any trees? Is there fruit? You know, he doesn't see anything when he first arrives. And that's a, that's a big deal for a character who's very much in command of his environment on earth. He's the lord of the jungle. You take him out of the jungle, it's like, what's he the lord of?
2: Hmm. No cheetah. I have a question. <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, what do you prefer more? Do you prefer the full novel or the anthologies?
3: To uh, Sherlock Holmes? Or in, uh, or yes. in what? Okay, in know, Sherlock like Holmes. F-
2: yeah. Compared to, uh, wouldn't that be a, uh, the Tarzan would
3: be a, a full novel, would it? And Tarzan is a full novel. Uh, I'm a novelist and a short story writer, uh, so I like both. In terms of Sherlock Holmes, it's funny. I I I I prefer the short stories because you can read them quickly and in one sitting. Uh, I've read all of the Holmes novels except Hounds of the Baskervilles, which I've been waiting for a special occasion. Uh, and part of the reason I put it off is I know the story. You know, I've seen film adaptations and comic adaptations, so there's. There's no big discovery there, but I I will enjoy reading it because it's his best novel in in, in most people's opinion. So, in terms of Sherlock Holmes, I like him best as a short story character, but I've been toying with an idea of maybe not doing a novel, but a novelette where Sherlock Holmes interacts with the Martians from The War of the Worlds. An idea that's been done several times, but apparently not very well according to reviews, uh, because people have tended to, the previous writers have tended to put the character smack in the middle of the H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds where he really doesn't have much to do because we already know how that story ends. You know, Earth people are basically helpless against the Martians until nature takes its course. And I've been thinking, well, you know, if there's a second invasion, maybe Holmes might have something to do and might be able to affect the outcome of that invasion. So I might take a swing at maybe not a novel, but a novelette or a novella. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does.
1: Hmm. Do you worry about modern politically correct viewpoints on some of these older stories and kind of, kind of a lot of things that are important to people in the 1800s and the way they interact with each other? Is much different than what you see nowadays and and what people complain about nowadays so we, yeah I,
3: I i i wouldn't say worry about it but i i'm, I'm sensitive to it I'll, I'll give you an example back in the 90s i wrote a Doc savage novel that was set in the early 30s and it had a uh, it was based on another dent outline and it had a lot of asian characters Fu Manchu kind of characters and so when i wrote that story i wrote it in the sensibility of 1934 or 5 or whatever it was with a lot of leering yellow faces and you know slant-eyed this and this because that was how the pulp writers write, wrote. About seven or eight years ago, I wrote a 1940-something Doc Savage that took place in Mongolia. Now, by 1940-something, the pulp writers weren't writing that old Fu Manchu style of stuff. They were more sophisticated and so was this writer, Lester Den. So when I wrote that one, all that stuff went out the door. I wasn't going to do it. Uh, that way, I was going to do it a little more uh, sensitively or a little more uh well let's click the shade and you know we would say racist now I'm not sure that it's always racist when someone is a white person is struggling to describe uh, another culture or another or people from another culture uh, It may be just how it's just point of view you know i, I, I along that line there was, I re- always remember a funny anecdote, funny to me that I I saw on the news somewhere uh, a a black defendant was getting uh, having a hard time with his uh, young white female um, uh, public defender and he was looking at jail time and she was trying to defend him and he wasn't thinking she was in a job and he lost his temper and he called her a pointy nosed bitch and I thought well, that's a very interesting point of view from a black person's point of view that the white girl would be pointy-nosed. Now, you could say that's racist, which it is from the standpoint of, well, you know, if the white person was a minority, you might say, well, pointy-nosed. That's derogatory. But I thought as a writer and observer, I said, well, you know, that's a refreshing point of view from my point of view. It's like, yeah, pointy-nosed going to remember that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily use it in the story, but it's like, well, that's an interesting viewpoint. Just as, you know, when the first white people and the first Asians, you know, uh, encountered one another, you know, the white person was seen as round-eyed and the Asian person was seen as oblique-eyed or slant-eyed or whatever, almond eyes was a uh, (laughs) pulp-style description. Those things that you could say, yeah, that's racist from uh, the point of view of different lenses at which you look at different people who are you see as different from yourself but i don't know that they're racist in the sense of 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 uh necessarily being uh hateful or negative it's just like well this is you know how this person looks to me and this is how this person looks to me so i you know, i'm aware of it i i agent the lester dance stories and i i i recently proofread two of his black mass stories which are going to be reprinted and there was a uh Dent used in his story, you know, he was in a restaurant, and he mentioned the waiter, and, and he was referred to as a darky waiter. And I'm thinking, hmm, darky, darky. Do we want that? Do we not want that? Do we? Want, I don't like changing things in previous published stories, but it's like, well, we have to be, you know, more and more sensitive or more and more aware right. of, okay, is that going to ruin the story for somebody? Is someone going to say, whoa, you know, or is someone going to say, Lester us he was a racist. He used the word darky in 1936 then there was another reference i won't say the word but there was a there's a a word for a bollard which is a thing on a, a wharf or a dock where you tie the rope around and they're black and they were called n-word heads one word n-word heads and i'm thinking okay first of all i didn't know what the word meant i had to look it up and i and i looked at that and i said i don't think we want that word in here even though it refers to an an ob- object object so I looked it up, I said, oh, it's a bollard. Okay, we're going to change that to bollard. That's a that's a no-brainer, because nobody now is going to know what the word meant. And even now, not everybody knows what a bollard is, so we changed that. And we'll probably change the darkie, but I had to think about that. It's like, okay, well, you know, it, it, that's not good, but it's not bad. It's like, when I grew up, you know, the older gener- there was an older generation that referred to black people as colored people. And, you know, even though you were a kid, you kind of cringed when you heard that because it was like, if it wasn't negative, it was at least old-fashioned. Whereas when I was really young, Negro was a usual term, and that that evolved into black. At one point, black, if you went back decades, black was a negative word, you know, because black people aren't really black. They're brown, for the most part. So we're going off on a tangent, but, you know, did I answer your question?
2: Uh, a little bit, but I want to expound upon it a little bit. I, Sherlock Holmes was 1894, and the what I do is I do research with uh, Jack the Ripper 1888, and one of the fiction novels that I wrote, I wanted to have contemporary jokes from the scout yard personnel because one of the scout yard personnel, which I think Conan Doyle even used, his name was Frost, but he uh, he was a jokester, so I. I looked up 19th century jokes, and I think 99% of them were about slamming on the Irish, or <laughs> I mean, it yeah, was, yeah, and, and yeah. was all of this. So I, it took me a while to find a joke that wasn't so bad.
3: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so that's a problem. You know, people. You know, we, you know, as time passes and people pass away, we we lose sense of how how aware previous generations were to things that we don't pay much attention to. People used to be really focused on other people's religion, you know. Uh, That used to be a thing. Like the house I grew up in, one of the houses I grew up in, for a long time the deed said you can't be sold to a Catholic. Well, that's illegal now. But at one point house deeds, you know, would have these religious restrictions that are crazy to us. Who cares who buys your house if you're getting your price? I remember John Nanovic, the editor of uh, (coughs) – The shadow, dark, savage of these pulps. He told me this story. And uh, I I think it's an interesting story because it sounds crazy now, but it was the way things were. He wanted to move into a neighborhood, uh, but Catholics weren't allowed to move into the neighborhood, except there was an exception. If you worked in the arts. Well, he edited pulp magazines, which weren't seen as the arts, but it was enough of an exception that he could move into this neighborhood in Jackson Heights, New York, just outside of New York City, and it was a restricted neighborhood, but it was restricted against Catholics. I would assume it would also be restricted against other people, but it was specifically against Catholics as far as white people and their religions. And it's like, you know, people thought those things were important in those days, that they would draw those lines. And, you know, in our modern world, when I meet someone I don't know what their religion. I don't ask. I don't even think about it. it. Doesn't occur to me to even think about, you know. Yeah, if someone is Muslim, you know, that might or might not be evident fairly quickly. If someone's Jewish, it's neither here nor there, but it also might be relatively evident, you know, if you got to know a person. But if someone is Presbyterian or Methodist or you know any of the Christian denominations, it's like I don't care about that. I wouldn't even know what a Methodist is, necessarily. I couldn't write you three paragraphs on what a Methodist is versus a Presbyterian or versus anything. But previous generations used to be very fixated on these caste, class, like in the South it used to be, and probably still is, who you're related to had more to do with your status than what you did. Or in the North and probably the West, what you do confers more information or, or, or acceptance than who your relatives were because, of the, because you know in the 20th century, especially, there's a lot more upward mobility. And we're certainly not talking about Sherlock Holmes and the folks, are we?
2: Right, right. So now when you're reading, you said that you read uh, Conan Doyle a little bit to get the flavor again. You yeah. can probably pick up things of the, the historical nature too, probably, I guess. Would you, was that would be correct?
3: You mean in reading the stories?
2: You know, like reading uh, Conan Doyle's stories, you may pick up some of—I uh, don't would say a his bias, but let's say uh, the how they were speaking back
3: then. And uh, yeah, you pick up exactly. you pick up as much as you could. But you know, British English can be very different than than U.S. English, and there, there there's subtleties and there's you know turns of phrases or, or twists of words that would go over our heads in the twentieth twenty first century that uh, you know, a contemporary writer would say, oh, that's, that's a, a, it's like the Southern phrase, oh, bless his heart. If you're not Southern or not familiar with you think that's sort of a compliment when it's not necessarily a compliment. It can be very derogatory. So you miss that stuff. Right, right. And I'm not sure right. I'm that close a reader to always pick up on these things, which is why right. I think I feel very self-conscious about writing Sherlock Holmes, and I try, work hard to overcome that.
2: I think, uh, as I, you know, with the Jacks Rippers, it's kind of the same time, is that phrase "out to sea" that they were using that phrase even in in England, and I had never heard of that. But then, of course, you you learn more and more about it once you keep on doing it. The uh,
3: I, I find yeah? it very interesting to go online and look up things about Victorian London that would give me insights. For instance, I, I don't know how I came across it, but I came across something about the uh, the watermen at the time, the guys who used to have these little boats, and they would ferry people across the Thames and across various waterways. And in Holmes' time, or Doyle's time, this was a dying occupation, but it was still there, and you had all these water stairs on the Thames where you could go walk down the stairs and there'd be a little boat and the guy would scull you across to the opposite shore. And I, I built a story around that little subculture that was dying. It used to be one of the big occupations of, of London leading up to the Victorian people. It was a story called The Adventure of Old Black Duffel. And it was about a you know a waterman who wore a black duffel coat, and there was mysterious things going on around him. And that like that sense of that culture and the dying culture was something, I don't know, I don't know why Doyle didn't write about it, because it's perfect. And just as you, you research you know uh, Jack the Ripper and what surrounds... You know that event and Whitechapel and the the nearby areas, and what the culture was like and what prostitution was like then and and you know you you get all these insights that you could never get from your imagination
0: oh, for sure for sure, and that's what you now know, you have
3: to ground yourself in 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 the reality of that world to write a you know to write a sensible story. you can as an American make up a wonderful Sherlock Holmes story. But a British person would say, Well it could never happen that way because we didn't have this at that time that came later and this and that and this and that. And uh you 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 you, you write a story that, you know, the uneducated Sherlock Holmes fan would say, Oh, it's not a bad story, but the educated Sherlock Holmes would say, No, you got the time period wrong, you have things happening before they could possibly happen, technology that's twenty years later, you know, you have to be careful about that stuff.
2: Right. Now, uh, I could talk for hours with you, uh, except, uh, um, so, um, in this case, is there any place where, do you have a website that people could go to or a place where people could find out more about you and your work?
3: Well, um, my website for selling books is www.adventuresinbronze.com. Adventures in Bronze is all one word, lowercase. That's where all my currently in print books are, but they're also on Amazon.com. Kindle, Nook, etc. But adventuresinbronze.com dot com is where you can see my um, my last ten years worth of of output, approximately. Okay. okay. Wow. Right.
1: So now, uh, what do you what do you got planned next? Where Where do you want to go from here?
3: Well, I'm talking about maybe doing a few more Dark Savages. Uh, I've got a Sherlock Holmes War of the Worlds idea, a sequel to Tarzan Conqueror Mars is in the discussion stage. We haven't committed to it. I'm wrapping up my second spider novel. The spider is like the shadow, but he's kind of like the bipolar version of the shadow. He's definitely <laughs> got some mental health issues, and that makes him very interesting. Uh, and that's that's what I've in lo- more home stories. You know, I just turned in one, and I've got a plan for at least one more. Uh, and beyond that, well, that's a lot already. It depends on what contracts come through, what agreements are made, what I do next. I'll probably write some Lovecraftian short stories, because I, I do those from, some t- from time to time, and there's some anthologies opening up looking for stories in that area.
1: So so nothing's really planned, it just sort of happens, in a way. In, in,
3: in, in, well, you know, if I sign a contract for three books, yeah, that's three books, but that doesn't mean I don't add a fourth from another contract in the middle of them. It all depends on... Um, how certain negotiations shake out and when they shake out, because sometimes I could I could start the week saying you know I don't have a next book, and by Friday I have four next books. Okay, which one do I do first? It you know there's all, I'm always in discussion about what licenses because most of my stuff is licensed properties. It's like okay, what can I do next? What do people want me to do? What do the readers want? What are the licensors willing to do? and it's kind of like sometimes you're you're waiting for things to gel and sometimes the sky opens up and you have to do a whole bunch of stuff yeah. all at once almost <laughs>
1: so but you're but maybe the mood sort of how what kind of mood you're in or?
3: I wish my mood governed <laughs> what I wrote I really wish I could just sit down and write what I felt like one day which rarely happens it's like what's to do? what anthologies are open up. What's what's the next deadline for the next anthology that I, I promised a story? For instance, I was recently approached to write a story for an interesting anthology set in the various occupied zones post-World War Two: Occupied Germany, occupied Japan, occupied Italy. And I said, well, that's a very interesting anthology. I'm going to have to really struggle to find a plot. But I did, you know, a plot and a hero. And that's due in December. And if... Nothing is happening. I'll probably write it before December, but if other things are happening, I won't write it until December. Uh, So, you know, mood. I wish I could write based on what I wanted to write. but It's all about juggling the opportunities and getting, you know, getting stories done in an orderly fashion so that the editors have them on time or before time. And, you know, I, you, you've got to be careful about starting a novel before you have a contract. Sometimes things go awry. So, yeah, I would love to sit down and write a Doc Savage and wait for the contract and show up later. Well, no, we yeah. <laughs> can't take a chance on that. We just don't want to be putting time into something that might fizzle. Not that I expect anything to fizzle, but sometimes contracts take a lot longer than you think, and you really have to be intelligent about what you're doing next. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, I would love to be a a mood writer, say, oh, I feel like writing this today. Yeah, I do. You know, when the, when the Sherlock Holmes mood comes on me and there's nothing else going on, I will write a Sherlock Holmes story. But usually what happens if someone says, I need a story in a month, it's like, yeah, I can do that. And that, that's my mood. Yeah. I'll get it done in a month.
1: Yeah, but you know, when these... Okay, so right now someone approaches you and you get got a contract and you're going to be writing a story, whether it' Doc Savage or homes or whatever so you've got this story you're writing and something happens in the world like what's been going on with uh covid and the protests and all the all the different turmoil going on does that influence your mood in writing does that influence the way you write
3: no because well you know uh, i work out of my home right technically it's a seven day a week work you know, schedule, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in 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 the sense of always being uh, aware that any day I woke up, I wake up, I might be doing something, either because I want to or I have to, or, you know, there's nothing else better to do. Uh, and because I don't write contemporary fiction, except very rarely now, uh, the outside world doesn't matter very much. I'm not a theme writer. I'm more of an action-adventure writer. And a mystery writer, and sometimes a science fiction writer in a limited sense of science fiction, not in a Star Trek sense of science fiction. So, you know, it's, uh, I'm in a different bubble than other writers who, you know, who respond to the real world that they live in and write, you know, write to that. I write for an audience who's interested in stories that were published 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, 100 years ago. That's my audience. That's my mentality. That's what I do. Hmm.
1: Well, yeah, I just I just wondered if, if it made you, you know, it, it made a darker mood in maybe the story, um, a darker feel to it if something dark is happening in your own life.
3: Well, again, I write escapist fiction. I don't write personal fiction. Right. So I, I don't you know I, I can't say that because I I'm, I'm not trying to reflect anything and i you know I, and i don't put myself in the stories i really try to be the other writer usually the dead writer <laughs> uh except when i was writing the destroyer the two writers were still alive and i was a ghost <clears throat> but uh um i mean you know that, that's 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 a question for someone writing contemporary fiction and who are you know who are part of their generation i, I live in a, I live in the past i write in the past i'm just in a completely different reality than than the things you're describing. I don't relate to them, yeah. you know? I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to teach the world anything, you know? Yeah. I, 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 I write such different... I mean, I have done things that are a little out there. I channeled a book once, but it was it's a book about God. And, you know, even that doesn't have anything to do with me. It was just, it's a channeled book. It's, just, we're literally channeled books. So it's like, well, that's just, that's over in that pocket. And my other pulp stuff is in this pocket, and Sherlock Holmes is not really pulp, but it's kind of in a, the mystery pocket. But you know, I don't relate to these questions because they don't have anything to do with what I do. I know it sounds crazy, but that's I'm not a writer of my time. Well, that's, you know, in that uh, not now anyway. <laughs> when I did Destroyer for ten years, yeah, it was it was all contemporary stuff. Yeah, that was that was different. I mean, that yeah, I could answer that question based on that. I haven't written a Destroyer since '90 six so yeah. but back then i was constantly reading the headlines i was constantly thinking ahead of the headlines i used to write stories that would be speculative and when they came out they'd be right on the money in spooky ways mm. uh or it was more contemporary nine or twelve months after i wrote it when it comes out than when i wrote it and you know that was happening constantly in in crazy ways um and in that in the will murray of that time could say yeah i'm constantly reading newspapers watching the news trying to stay on top of things so i can write about world events in my destroyer novels which were political satirical science fiction fantasy adventure escapist novels there i was really connected to it but i don't do those books anymore
1: Mm. wow you're a fascinating writer. Um, we appreciate you for being uh, on the show and, and talking about your books. We'll have Yes, you. sure. We'll, we'll have you up on our website as well so people listening can just uh, do one click and they'll find your work. Well, well Murray, that's great. Thank you well, for I'm being I'm glad here. to be here.
3: This is fun. I haven't done radio in a long time.
4: You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, Or show, go to www.houseofmystery.com.
3: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah.
4: Good night. This has been a
2: production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.